now. Oh, that's a first. Wow, this meeting is being recorded. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. If you came in late, um, we just got done with the prayer and we are in John chapter one. So by way of review, I'm going to give you kind of the background of where we've been in chapter one and you can kind of read along. I'm not going to read all 42 verses that we've covered, but this is a prologue to the gospel of John. John was one of the insider apostles, uh, one of the ones closest, maybe the closest one to Jesus. So he gives his own testimony in these first verses that Jesus is the word, the logos. It means like the reason for everything, the power behind the universe to Greeks. For the Jews, it meant the word of God. And he is that as well, personified. He's the Bible in a sense. He's also... Uh, God himself, he was with God and he created everything. He is the light. We learned in this first few verses of chapter one, you kind of can read along right around verse five, six, and seven is where I am. Uh, he's also the life. Um, and then in verse 14, we find out that this word became flesh. Jesus became a man in order to be able to die for the sins of the world and to live the perfect life you and I were supposed to live without sin and then die in our place, take our suffering for all who would believe. So starting in verse 19, we get uh, sort of testimony from John the Baptist, who uh, is, we learn from Jesus in another gospel, he's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, to that time, he's the greatest man that ever lived, Jesus says. And yet Jesus says, I think it's Matthew, that if you're the least one in the kingdom of God, you're greater than John. We have greater um, revelation. John died before Jesus could die and rise from the dead, didn't see the coming of the Holy Spirit in on Pentecost, but he was a great Old Testament prophet, and he testifies that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Messiah, and that the Holy Spirit rested on him. And then in starting in verse 38, you have uh, another group giving testimony besides John and John the Baptist, and it's the five apostles he picks first, Andrew, Peter, John, Philip, and Nathaniel, um, who were... Um, you know, the very early apostles. He hasn't formally called them to be apostles yet, but they're disciples at this point, followers. Um, so um, let's pick it up in verse 43, shall we? Those of you on Zoom and those of you that are here, so I know you're awake, say amen. amen. Oh, that was pretty good. We'll see how it is in a little while from now. Verse, um, so he just met in verse 42, uh, Peter, which is Simon is his name, son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. You see that in verse 42. He calls him what he isn't. He's not a rock. And he's often, you know, kind of a little ADD and a little shoot from the hip kind of guy, but you'll see him really grow as we go along. Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me pretty brief, don't you think? If you, if you only had this gospel, it would sound to you like he just met Philip and said, follow me. And Philip went, okay. The truth is from the other gospels, these guys have met Jesus, watched Jesus, heard Jesus before this, but he's formally asking them, 
follow me. Now, that does, that's not as casual as it sounds. For a rabbi, a teacher, that's what rabbi means, to say follow me it meant I want you to be my student and basically hang with me all day long pretty much every day. If you had a job, you usually would have to quit your job at some point and be a student of the rabbi. Follow me in a basic sense means go where I go, right? And that sounds great until you realize that he went to the cross and he died. And so we're supposed to die to ourselves in the same way, but we won't cover that now. That'll come up later. So that, this is Philip. And he just simply says, follow me. Um, now, what's interesting about Philip is uh, one commentator wrote, Philip would not be the guy voted most likely to succeed in his high school yearbook. Um, very little said about him. It's thought he was kind of a simple man. This is good news to me because I didn't do that well in high school or college. Anyway, um, Philip is mentioned, listen to this, in the other three gospels, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, he's mentioned one time in each. And what is he doing? He's just in a list of apostles. Whereas you read a lot about Peter, about James, about John, about some of the others, doubting Thomas, we all know that name. Very little said about him. 12 times he's mentioned in the gospel of John. So we'll learn a little bit about him as we go. But uh, he is not uh, a leader by any means. But the, if there's a lesson in this, it's that he can use anybody. And if you knew me, 40 years ago, you'd watch the Bible study and go, yeah, he can use anybody. In any case, uh, he can, you, God can use anybody and God can change anybody. Verse 44, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And uh, this is a fishing town. And so instantly, Philip is a good example. Look at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, meaning the Old Testament, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What's he doing? He's witnessing to somebody else. Just tell him about Jesus Christ. Most people don't do that who are Christians because they think, well, I'm not a theologian. What if they ask me a hard question? What if I offend them? What if they get in my face? I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Not scriptural. You read Matthew 28. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. Some people get the call from Jesus to go to Biafra or Chad or South America. Others, all others, get the call to go where you work, where you live, your neighbors, your family, your friends. Just tell them. Put the word out there. It's, we're not responsible for the results. We're to cast the seeds. God makes certain seeds grow. So he's from the town of Bethsaida. They probably all know each other. So he finds this guy, Nathaniel. Okay. And you can already tell this is going to be one of the 12 apostles. But we got a little problem here. Because in the other three gospels, no Nathaniel. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? To me, it is. But there's a guy in the other Gospels named Bartholomew who's not mentioned in the Gospel of John. So is that a mistake? No, it's the same guy. Bartholomew means son of Tholomew or son of Tolmai, um, like son, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar means son of, okay? In 
um, Arabic, like for the Muslims, you've heard of Osama bin Laden. Bin is son of, same kind of thing, bar, son of. So Nathaniel, almost every scholar agrees, is Bartholomew, which just means the son of Ptolemy. Nathaniel's his first name. Um, so uh, he is an interesting guy as well. Uh, so here, here is Nathaniel. Um, somewhere I have what his name means. This is a guy that's kind of the opposite of Philip. This is a guy of tremendous spiritual depth and knowledge, Nathaniel. I know you don't hear about him like you do Peter, James, and John. He might be the most knowledgeable one about the Old Testament. I'll show you why in a second that we say that. Um, so Nathaniel. So he tells him, Philip does, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law. This is Philip saying, I know the Old Testament. They're all Jewish, right? All 12 apostles are. He's saying there's all kinds of predictions in the Old Testament about the Messiah. We found him. Now, if you were a Jew, this would not be the first time you heard this. There were a lot of pretenders to the crown, if you will. So-and-so says he's the Messiah. Yeah, right. So this is, in a way, another one kind of thing. You'll see Nathaniel at first, his little bit of skepticism. Watch. We found the one Moses wrote about in the law. Law would be the first five books of the Old Testament and the, about whom the prophets also wrote. That would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the other prophets. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Okay, so normally you'd say the person's name and the son of so-and-so that as a last name. The most popular name in the United States is John's son, which means John's son at some point, right? Back in history. So, he throws in Jesus of Nazareth. Another way of uh, designating somebody in those days was where they're from. Joe of Oakhurst, Joe of Santa Cruz or San Jose is where I came from, or Lawrence, Massachusetts before that. Um, so that's what he says. Listen to Nathaniel's response. We found the guy, the prophets were talking about, Jesus of Nazareth. By the way, Jesus is Yeshua in Hebrew. It means God is salvation or God saves. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Verse 46, Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. And there's that phrase we saw last week. Come and see. Check it out. There, when I have witnessed to people in the past who um, don't know Christ as their Savior, don't know much about the whole Jesus story, um, they usually have an opinion already. And I like to say to them, can you tell me the name of a movie that you've never seen? What? A movie that you've never seen. You've heard of it. You never saw it. Okay. And they'd name some movie. And then I would say, okay, in that movie... What did you think about the acting or the, how about the cinematography? And did you like the way it ended? And they usually say, I told you, I didn't see it. So if you didn't see the movie, you really can't have an, an educated opinion. Can you? No. Have you read the Bible? Have you read the whole new Testament about Jesus Christ, four different autobiographies, and then several other books of the Bible after that? No. Then is it wise to have an opinion because Jesus is sort of a movie you've never seen, right? But beyond that, the Bible says Old Testament, taste 
It's not just get the knowledge. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So um, just an interesting thing I thought I'd throw in there. Okay, so Nazareth is a small town. Let's back out, zoom out on Google Maps here. Um, they had Google Maps then, but it was very slow. Okay, Galilee would be like if you're from Chicago or New York or Los Angeles or a big city and somebody says, I'm from Arkansas. Galilee was kind of the sticks, okay? The country folk, not as educated, not as refined. And in Galilee, there were some bigger cities, but there were also just podunk little nothing towns like Nazareth that not only had an insignificant reputation, it even had a kind of a bad reputation. I'm not going to name any small towns here because don't you know it, somebody will be from that town and write me a letter. Um, I was going to, and now I'm not going to. Anyway, can anything good come from there? Now, the Jews knew that the Messiah comes from Bethlehem, same place as David. Does Jesus come from there? Yes, he's born there, but he's raised in this podunk town called Nazareth. Okay. Um, there's an obscure verse in the Old Testament that says about the Messiah, he shall be called a Nazarene. Kind of interesting that there was a little obscure prediction, not only Bethlehem, Nazareth. Most Jews didn't know it, so you get the little dig. Now, it turns out Nathaniel is from Cana, C-A-N-A, -A, which we're going to have in chapter 2, a whole story about what happens there. Another small town about nine miles away from Nazareth. There might be a little competition between the two towns. Can anything good come from there? Come and see, said Philip. So the two are walking toward Jesus. Jesus sees them walking, verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, mind you, this is not somebody he's met before. They have never met. You'll see that in a second. So Jesus sees Nathanael approaching, and he says to him, sorry, said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. There's nothing false. There's no deceit, various ways to translate the word. Okay? So this is what may look like a first impression from Jesus. You ever see somebody and you kind of size them up and this isn't what Jesus is doing. Remember, Jesus is God in a man's body. Therefore, he's omniscient. Okay, omni meaning all. Science is the second half of that word, meaning knowledge. He has all knowledge. God, like Jesus, there are some things he can't do. You say, wait a minute, I thought God was all powerful. He is. But God can't sin, for example, right? Neither can Jesus. God and Jesus cannot learn. They can't. He knows. He sees him and goes, I know the whole story about this guy now. And he's going to prove it in a second. Here comes a true Israelite a, in whom there is nothing false, no deceit. He, sent, he knows Nathaniel is a sincere, solid believer in the Old Testament, looking forward to whoever the Messiah is when he comes, does his best to obey God. He's serious about his faith. There's no, nothing false in him. You ever meet people like that? It's refreshing because there's no um, 
pretense. They tell you what they think. Sometimes they're a little blunt, those kinds of people, right? That shirt don't go with them pants, you know, kind of thing. They just say it, right? Where you might kind of nice, nice outfit you got on, Bob. Okay. There's nothing false in you. Verse 48. How do you know me? Nathaniel asks. See, they've never met. How do you know me? Jesus answered, verse 48, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Okay, omniscience. It doesn't mean he saw him with binoculars or was walking by and saw him. Obviously, you'll see in a second, wherever this fig tree is, Nathaniel goes there often. It is kind of a spiritual place for him. The fig tree, by the way, in the Old Testament represents Israel. This is a true Israelite. He was under the fig tree. What was he doing? We're not told, but I'm going to tell you my opinion, okay? At least he was praying, or he was reading a scripture. He was meditating on God and on the Messiah coming at something very spiritual. This was his place that he went, and it was a place that's private, so that he was shocked that anybody saw him there. It was not like the fig tree was right next to Highway 17, and you go, well, no wonder you saw me. People are going and coming. Not, not so. How do you know me? I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. So earlier that day, maybe a week ago, something happened under the fig tree for this Nathaniel guy. Jesus, proving his omniscience, all-knowing nature, demonstrates it. Then Nathaniel declared, verse 49, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, doesn't that seem a little bit like kind of overdoing it? Really? Just from, I saw you under the fig tree. Clearly, it's not just, I saw you at Safeway two weeks ago. Big deal, right? Something is going on here more than it seems. Okay, for Nathaniel, who is a true Jew, he speaks his mind. He is so blown away at Jesus's knowledge. There's got to be other things going on here, and we're going to uh, kind of take it apart as we go. So he declares, number one, rabbi, which means teacher, you're much more than a teacher. Look what he calls him. You are the son of God, the king of Israel. Okay, this takes some faith because he's not the king of Israel. There's no crown, probably looks poor. He's an ex-carpenter that's now an itinerant preacher, right? Traveling around. But he knows just because of what Jesus said, this is the guy. Maybe was it revealed to him under the fig tree? Speculation. We don't know. But I'll tell you what I think went on under the fig tree in a second. So he calls him the son of God, the king of Israel. I'm sure Philip... And any of the other apostles went like this. What did you call him? The son of God, the king of Israel. Predicted in the Old Testament was this Messiah figure who was supposed to be the savior. Okay. He was supposed to sit on the throne of his father, David, and, and long ago, ancestor David, and rule in Israel. Okay. But he was also supposed to rule, listen, forever, which already hints, if you're a man, you can't pull that off. You're going to get old, you're going to die, or someone's going to murder you if you're a king, those sorts of things happen. 
an eternal kingdom is the Messiah's. That's why he knows he's the Messiah, and he knows that the Messiah is also called the Son of God. Now, the word, by the way, for the, I'm backing up a little. Here comes a true Israelite in whom there's no deceit, no guile. Um, you could translate this. Here comes a true Israelite in whom there's no Jacob. You say, well, who's Jacob? Old Testament. Abraham, father of the Jewish people, has a son, Isaac. I'm giving you the short version. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob ends up having 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. Don't let me get into the math. It's a little fuzzy, but Jacob means, are you ready? Can you imagine naming your son this? Deceiver, trickster, somebody you can't trust. What's your name? A deceiver. Nice to meet you. Look at this used car I have, right? Jacob, if you know the story of Jacob, he's a deceiver. God renames him and turns him into Israel, okay? A faithful man, but he chooses this guy that's a deceiver, okay? I'm about to show you that I think that under the fig tree, Nathaniel was either reading or praying about or meditating on Genesis 28. We're going to go there in a second. Don't go there yet. I saw you turning already. Um, okay, so what's going on here? He, uh, may, he may have prayed to see the Messiah, but he knows Jesus can see um, him when no one could have seen him. Uh, what I'm looking for, let's see. There's all kinds of verses in the Bible where Son of God and King of Israel are references for the Messiah. I won't make you turn there, but 2 Samuel 7 uh, says the following. God says to David, king of Israel, I'll raise up an off your offspring after you, okay, which he's talking about Solomon. But like a lot of things, there's a double meaning, a, a near-in-time fulfillment and a future distant-in-time fulfillment. Watch. Um, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall, who shall come from your body, I will establish his kingdom. Oh, one of my descendants is going to be a king. Good so far. He will build a house for my name. That's true of Solomon. I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Listen to this forever. There it is. I will be to him a father and he to me a son. This is God talking. So we know he's going to be a king and he's going to be God's son. That's where Nathaniel gets it. He's not making it up. You could also go to Psalm Two, which says the same thing. Um, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I've begotten you, king and son. So Nathaniel's not that off the wall saying, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. Um, let's see. I'm going to skip that for now. So that's the response of Nathaniel, just right out of the gate. Rabbi, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. I'm sure the others were a little stunned. Well, he's great, but we don't know that yet, do we? Keep in mind, this is, in a, in a sense, the first miracle, just the omniscience, knowing what he knows, okay? Jesus responds, and, and you can take this two different ways, as a question, or I think it's a statement, but you can take it as a question. You're the son of God, the king of Israel, verse 50. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He basically says, you believe from that little incident, you ain't seen nothing yet, kid. 
right? Um, now listen to what he says Nathaniel's going to see. Verse 51. Then he added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending, that's climbing up, and descending, climbing down, on the Son of Man. Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's a title for the Messiah, usually Old Testament. Pretty amazing. He, Jesus declare, shows his full knowledge of everything. Nathaniel says, you, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus says, just because I saw you under the fig tree, you're going to see heaven open, number one. Angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Keep your finger here and go all the way back to Genesis 28 with me just for a minute. That's the easy book to find because it's the first one. Genesis chapter 28. Go back there if you will. What's going on in Genesis 28 is Jacob has just acted like a total deceiver trickster. He cheated his brother out of his blessing. He tricked his dad into getting a blessing and he's on the run. He's afraid Esau is going to kill him, his brother. So he's um, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, chapter 28, um, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba. That's where beer was invented. No, I made that up. Never mind. And set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Key word, just in the back of your mind. Keep it in the back of your mind. Place. Okay, I'll show you why in a second. He reached a certain place, stops for the night, the sun had set. It's dark out. He's got to sleep outside by himself. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. How tired do you have to be to use a stone for a pillow? Mike Lindell would be shocked with this news. Okay, um, so he takes a stone, puts it under his head, lays down, and he sleeps. Verse 12, he had a dream in which he saw a stairway. Some translations have a ladder. It can be either thing. It's just some sort of a thing that's built that takes you from down here to up there. Okay. So in the dream, God gives him a vision and it's a stairway basically to heaven. Those of you that like Led Zeppelin, you know that song. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. Okay, stop right there. Sound familiar? Sounds like what we just read with one change. Did you notice what it is? What are the angels ascending and descending on? A ladder or a stairway, right? Not in John. It's the same thing word for word, except he tells him, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on. And Nathaniel's going, yeah, a ladder, a stairway. And he goes, no, me. Okay. Now go back to John, if you will, those of you that are completely confused like me. And let's see if we can dig a little deeper. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. What's going on here? Number one, would you agree that earth down here, we live in three dimensions plus time, actually four dimensions, and we can see each other in trees in the sky and we can't see God, right? 
We can't see normally. We can't see heaven. We can't see angels. But we believe as believers, don't we? They're there, right? So a stairway or ladder that could connect this realm of physical earth with the heavenly realm would be a sort of a gateway. Are you with me so far? A doorway to heaven, a way to get from here to there and a way for messages because the word angel means messenger and messengers bring a message, right? A way for messages to come down and to go up prayer, if you will. I believe, and I'm not the only one, a lot of scholars believe Nathaniel was reading what I just read in Genesis 28, or meditating on it, or praying about it, and wishing he could see the same kind of thing. And Jesus blows his mind even more by saying, I even know what you were reading. I know what you were meditating on. You're going to see heaven open and angels ascending and descending on me. Meaning what? I wish I could get to that stairway because maybe I could climb to heaven when I die. Jesus is saying, I am the way to heaven, right? It, notice that it doesn't say there'll be all kinds of different stairways. There'll be Hinduism and there'll be, you know, just live the best life you can and you'll get there. There's one stairway, one ladder. He's saying, I'm it. John 14, 6, he says, Jesus does, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. The one stairway. So um, heaven open and messages going back and forth. Basically, he's saying, when you see the miracles, when you hear my words of wisdom in the Sermon on the Mount and other sermons that Jesus gives, when you hear what I'm saying, when you see what I'm doing, when you see the protection of God on me, you will see those angels from God coming down and you'll see the prayers going up and the messages and the openness between heaven and earth. That's why I'm here. That's basically what he's saying. Angels are said to have ministered to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember that? Luke 22 in the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil. Remember that 40 days angels come and minister to him after that. Um, doesn't mean Nathaniel saw that, but I'm just giving you a couple of examples. Uh, we already talked about the whole messenger thing. The connection between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm is not a philosophy. It's not a way of life. It's a person. That's Christianity. Every other religion, listen, say amen so I know you're awake. Every other religion is D-O do this, do the eightfold path of Buddhism, do the five pillars of Islam and be as good as you can do it. Christianity is D O N E done. Jesus did it. Did what? Live the sin sinless life. You were supposed to live, died the horrible death. You and I deserve he paid for our sins, opened the way to heaven right? Ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father. He is the stairway. You can choose your own stairway. It's not going to go all the way up. If you've ever been in San Jose at the Mystery House, they have all these stairways. We grew up in San Jose, didn't we? Several of us um, can too. There's all these stairways in this house. This lady was a little partly cloudy, you might say, to use a weather term. She would build and build stairways that go nowhere, okay? That's 
in the words of the Bible, that's what other philosophies and religions are. They look, those stairways, I've been in that house, took the tour, and there's stairways that look pretty good. And then you look and it just, there's just a wall there. It leads nowhere. So Jesus is that staircase, that communication, that open way to heaven. Um, we already talked about that. There's people that go so far as to say, notice Jacob put his head on a rock. Jesus is the rock. I don't know if we're stretching things, but it's interesting anyway. Um, let's see. We already talked about that. Um, okay. Nathaniel, remember, what did he say? What's the first thing he said? Nazareth. That what place? Can anything come good from that place? It's all about the place. Because Jacob, I didn't read this to you, but in Genesis 28, go home and read it tonight, the whole story. When he wakes up from that dream, he's so blown away. He says, he looks around and says, it looks like an ordinary place. But God is here and I didn't know it. Okay. And he builds uh, like sort of a memorial thing and that place. Muslims have a place called Mecca right? They pray facing Mecca, I'm guessing, right? Five times a day. They have to go there once in their lifetime if they can. Medina is a holy place. Jerusalem is a holy place, right? Christianity says places are out. It's a person. The beauty of this is you are as close to God where you are right now as anybody in Jerusalem or Bethlehem or Medina or the North Pole or Mars or Venus. You are as close as you can get. In fact, closer because God lives inside of you. This person that is the stairway. Um, let's see. So he's into this whole place thing like Jacob was, like the fig tree was for him. Um, and Jesus sets him kind of straight. Don't look at the ground where the ladder is. Look at the ladder itself is what he's saying. So in chapter one, we've had all these um, pictures of Jesus. He's the lamb of God. He's uniquely un uh, anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's the son of God. He's the king of Israel. I won't read the whole list again. The rest of this book, we've already seen a couple miracles is John showing you, here's how he, listen, proved it with miracles. Jesus did things that no human being can do. Enough of them that it is proof of his deity, that he really was the Messiah. I like to ask people who don't believe in Jesus, do you know the life story of Jesus? If they do, I say, what didn't he do that you think somebody that was God in a human body could do? How about controlling nature? Oh, wait, he did that, right? Told the storm, stop, and the storm stopped, remember? Controlled where the fish were when they were fishing, remember? Multiplied loaves and fishes. Creation miracle, really, right? Out of very little, he makes a lot. Healed the sick, raised the dead, rose from the dead himself, ascended to heaven, and they watched him go in Acts chapter 1, right around verse 9 or 10. You can look that up later. Um, trust me, I'm pretty sure that's right. Um, so last thing before we move on, uh, we need to be like these people. We may have been skeptical at first, Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, I went to Catholic church. I don't really is Jesus. But as you investigate, as you come and see, as you taste and see that he is good, 
that it's all real, if all you do is believe, you're only halfway there because you're supposed to witness like John the Baptist did, like John is doing as he's writing, like Nathaniel is going to do, like Philip who went and grabbed somebody and went, we found him, come check it out. Um, Jesus in this chapter, the word, the light, the only begotten of the father, Jesus Christ, the only begotten God, the Lord, the lamb of God, a man, the son of God, rabbi, teacher, Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, king of Israel, son of man. By the way, son of Joseph is his, that's legally who he was, his earthly father, although not his biological father. He's the son of Mary, actually, and the son of God is his father. Fully God, fully man. So the rest of this book is going to be proving everything um, that we've been reading. Let's go on to chapter two, shall we? On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Uh, hold on, I'm on the wrong page. There we go. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So let's get the scene. Number one, forget everything you know about weddings. Okay? This is a Jewish wedding 2,000 years ago. A short wedding would be three days. A normal wedding, five to seven days long. Spend the night. It's a party and a half, okay? It's a big deal. It's a social thing. Um, and this is at the small town in Galilee uh, where Nathaniel's from. And Jesus' mother is there. Got the picture? Um, we're going to talk about Jesus' mother, Mary, uh, as we go here. And hopefully not offend somebody, but probably we will. Um, Jesus' mother's there, and Jesus and his disciples. That would be the five we just met. Um, James, John, Nathaniel, um, Philip, and Andrew. Um, so there's a little problem at the wedding. Okay, To this point, he has done no public ministry. He has done no public uh, miracles or healings that we know of, okay? This is, he's gathering disciples, um, but not really doing miracles yet. Verse three, when the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine, okay? Now, Jesus is not a caterer. He's not a bartender, doesn't work for the, the winery, okay? It's a little bit of a non sequitur. Why, why are you telling me? I'm a guest just along with you. Um, to run out of wine, wine in the Old Testament is symbolic of joy, okay? Um, and to run out of wine was the kind of social mistake that would put a stigma on your marriage and on your household forever in that culture. You know, that's the guy, they, they had a wedding, they ran out of wine. No. Yes. Kind of like the party's over, right? It's like the band quit early as a musician, right, Jeff? We're important. Um, so there's no wine. They've run out of wine way earlier than they were supposed to. Maybe more guests showed up. Probably several hundred people are at this wedding. They're eating. It's several days long. No wine which makes everybody feel like the party's over. The wine in those days had alcoholic content. Don't believe what the Mormons say. They say it was grape juice. There's a word for grape juice. That ain't what they're using here. 
it's wine. Is it the same um, proof or strength that we have wine in bottles today? No, less, okay? They, the water in those, in that area was not very pure. You couldn't drink straight water without probably getting a stomach ache or getting pretty sick. So they would mix water with a little bit of wine to kill the germs kind of thing or drink the straight wine, but it wasn't as powerful, but it was alcoholic wine, if you will. We're going to be serving. We're going to have an open bar here later. So just kidding. Okay. So there's a little problem. And Jesus's mother comes to him and says, they have no more wine. Verse four, woman, NIV has dear woman, not in the original woman. Why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. This is a hard phrase to translate. Basically what he's saying is, what's that between you and me? In other words, is this my problem? Why are you telling me this? By the way, it sounds a little abrupt that he calls his mom woman. Okay. In that culture, it would be the same as in our culture. If you lived in the South and you, you said ma'am to somebody, it's respectful. It doesn't like a woman get in here, woman. It's not like that at all. However, it's not as affectionate as mom or mama or mother. Okay. He is not five years old when he did call her mother. He, to be a perfect person and never sin, he always respected, honored, right? Obeyed his parents, right? Joseph is almost certainly deceased at this time, dies pretty young. It's thought Joseph was much older than Mary. Mary is probably 14, 13, 15, 16 when she has Jesus. So if he's 30, she's mid 40s kind of thing. But still his mom, it's still respectful, but he wants her to know, I'm 30 years old. I'm here to obey my father in heaven. You're still my mom. I still respect you. But he reacts by saying, why do you involve me? My hour is literally how it reads, has not yet come. Every time in the Gospel of John, when he talks about his hour, he means the hour when he's going to go suffer, die, rise from the dead, ascend to heaven. That's the real reason he's there on earth. My hour has not yet come. Another way to take it is my ministry hasn't yet begun. You're kind of jumping the gun here. I was going to start in three weeks, but here you are rushing me. They have no wine. Now, because he's done no miracles, some scholars think he, she's just telling him, like, could you and your disciples go to the 7-Eleven and get five cases of wine, right? Is there something you can do? Probably, being the perfect human being, she had other children. We'll talk about that in a little while. She probably has experienced that he is always so wise, right? She, he's the one she goes to. And so he tells, she tells him the problem. They have no wine. She doesn't say do a miracle. I don't know that she even expects a miracle, but she might. I don't think he's done any miracles to this point, but she brings him the problem. Object lesson number one for y'all, that's plural for you. When you have a problem, do you go to Christ? Do you go to God first, third, 27th, after you've exhausted every possibility, freaked out and had two sleepless nights, or do you go to him immediately? Mary's to be um, commended. She goes right to Jesus. They don't have any wine. I don't know that she, how much she knows about who he's going to be and what have you. She's told by the angel, but um, it's hard to say. 
He says, my time hasn't yet come. Don't you love this? That's a gentle rebuke. If you said, if Joanne said to me, Joe, you have no wine. And I said, what does that have to do with me? My time hasn't come. You would take that as a, in a way, I'm not going to help you, right? It's kind of a gentle no. Don't you love this Jewish mother? Verse five. His mother said, oh, well, I'll ask someone else. Nope. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Don't you love that? This is bumper sticker number two in the Gospel of John. Do whatever he, capital H, tells you to do. Isn't that Christianity? Well, what does he tell me? Read the Bible. Do whatever he tells you to do. I know it's a long bumper sticker, probably this big, but stay with me on this. So he tells, she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Some people think Mary's related in some way to the bride and groom. By the way, it would all be on the groom, not the bride. You ran out of wine. It's not the bride's fault. The groom is the host in a sense. We're gonna, it's 10 minutes over. We're gonna take our two minute break right now and stretch our aging bodies. Don't go away. I'm gonna turn my screen off, but I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. All right, we're back. That's almost two minutes. In fact, it is now. We're back in, Gen in Genesis, in John chapter two. And we've got a little problem. They're out of wine. So Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do. I think that took faith. Okay. Um, uh, during the break, somebody mentioned to me, and he's right. If Joseph is deceased, Jesus is the oldest boy, sort of the head of the household. Probably why he stayed home, being a carpenter, support the family, if you will. So um, let's see. So do whatever he tells you to do. He, she tells the servants. Verse six, nearby stood six stone water, pot, water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Some translations have uh, 18 to 25 gallons. These are big. If you can imagine a five-gallon thing is this big, these are much bigger than this, okay? Surprisingly, these are not for consumption, okay? You ever see when you're out camping somewhere, not potable, potable, meaning don't drink this water. Well, what's the water there for? The water is there for purification. The Jews in the Old Testament time had a million laws. You have to wash a certain way before every meal. The feet have to be washed. You have to wash the pots, the pans, the cups. Everything has to be ceremonially washed. It's a religious thing, not a hygiene thing. You with me so far? Okay, so that's what these are for. for. Six stone, by the way, not clay, stone. So they're very heavy. They're huge. Um, six of them, water jars, and they're used for ceremonial washing, verse six, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So if that's right, 20 times six is 120. Um, 30 times six is 180. So this is a lot of wine. Amen. You know what's going to happen. You've heard the story before. He makes wine, right? Um, so somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons, not a bottle of wine is a quarter of a gallon roughly, right? 
liter kind of thing, quart, whatever you want to say, depending on how cheap the wine is you drink. Okay, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. So Jesus takes charge. Verse seven, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now, why is that detail in there? I'll tell you why. Because God knows how suspicious people are, okay? And if they filled them, but there was still some room, you could have put in some really strong alcoholic thing and made wine, shake it up real good. They're filled to the brim with what class? Water. This would take some time, by the way. 20 gallons each thing, whatever, however big they were. Um, fill them up to the brim. So they filled them to the brim. This is sort of like the resurrection where the more you look at it, there's no other way out of the problem of how did he come back from the dead? Well, he wasn't really dead. You can look at that as much as you want. The Romans who were professional killers, the crucifiers, um, testified he was dead. So many, this is like one of those. There's no way around the fact that this is a miracle. The problem is, Todd and I were talking about this earlier. The problem is Jesus doesn't want to start the ministry yet. So he's got the task of doing a miracle to save the wedding without everybody knowing, oh, Jesus, thank you. Okay. I want you to notice Jesus doesn't say, magic words and incantation, water be wine. You know, he spoke the universe into existence. Let there be light, right? This is a very under the radar, like kind of a quiet miracle if there's such a thing. So fill the jars with water to the brim. Then he tells the servants, verse eight, now draw some of, the, some of it out. They think it's still water and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. That's verse eight. Okay. Stop right there. You're one of the servants. Okay. You do as you're told. This dude at the wedding said, go fill up those jars with water. It's going to take some time. Those giant pots, fill them all up with water. You're a servant. You and your fellow servants, you know what you did. You filled them up with what class? Water. And by the way, not drinkable water. Now this guy at the wedding who told you to do that is telling you, draw some out in a cup and take it to the master of ceremonies, okay? The MC, the guy that keeps the party going. He's always got a smile on his face trying to keep the wedding going. We got no wine. What are we going to do here? You're a servant and you're a servant and you've been told by this guy Go bring him some of that water that's not drinkable. I don't know about you, but I think I would go, um, you do it, right? Because the master of ceremonies, in a way, is their boss. And if it's water that he's going to spit out, you might be at the unemployment line down in Jerusalem, right? Instead of Cana. So, but they do it. I think it takes a little bit of faith on their part. They don't know Jesus, but they do it. They take some to him. Verse nine, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. You say, when did that happen? I don't know. As soon as the jars were filled, as soon as they put some in on the way there up to the master, who knows? Who cares? It's a miracle, quiet miracle, but a pretty cool miracle. My question I'm going to ask you in a second is, what kind of miracle is this? 
It's not healing. It's not raising somebody from the dead. I also want you to notice this is not an emergency. Jesus has people and he encounters fathers come to him and go, please help me. My daughter's dying. Remember that story? Mary and Martha send word to him. Lazarus is very, very sick. He's on his deathbed. This isn't that. We're out of wine. So serve root beer. I'm kidding. They don't have root beer. Um, okay. So let's keep reading, shall we? I'm looking at my notes here. Um, these pots were for ceremonially washing all the rules, the law, the regulation of Judaism over and over. Keep washing. Why do we have to keep washing? Because we're dirty? No, not because you're dirty physically, because you're dirty spiritually. It's all a picture of you guys are all sinners, you Jews. So are we, right? Jesus takes those very pots and turns them something ordinary into something extraordinary, something awesome, right? Wine. Jesus saves the party, basically. Okay, the master of ceremonies gets the wine, um, tasted the water, verse 9, that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. He has no idea. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, right? Knew what? Knew that Jesus told them, go fill them up with water. As far as they know, it's water, and they're going to be fired for bringing him water that you can't drink. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, verse 10, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. Bumper sticker number three, capital Y. You have saved the best until last. What do you mean? I mean in the future. When you are a believer, when you die, when Christ returns, when he reigns on the earth, believe me, heaven is so much better than earth, you can't even compare it, right? Saves the best for last. He saves the party. He's saying a very common thing. You bring out the good wine first. Everybody's a little bit looser with the other wine and they're getting, okay, bring out the cheap stuff now, that stuff we got, two buck chuck or whatever. He says, you're bringing the best wine out. By the way, if you're the bridegroom, you're going, I did? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I planned pretty well for this. He's thinking, what happened, right? We were out of wine half an hour ago. So, um. This, verse 11, the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee, he thus revealed, listen, his glory. Remember I said all those titles in chapter 1 for him, Son of God, King of Israel, Messiah, the Word, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We beheld his glory, John says in chapter 1. Now his glory is starting to be on display. But notice how quiet the miracle is. No, very few people at the party, we're going to discuss who in a minute, very few people at the party know it was that guy, right? The servants know. Mary probably figured it out, right? The disciples probably know. John notices that they filled them to the brim. He knows how many gallons they were. John's probably right with Jesus going, you sure about this water thing, right? 
Jesus saves the party. Um, okay, now, instead of ceremonial washing again and again and again, there's actually a sermon by this title. The kingdom of God is a party. Okay? Jesus, um, I'll, I don't know if I want to go here, sidebar. Jesus and the disciples drank wine. If you have a problem with alcoholic beverages, you shouldn't partake, right? But to say it wasn't wine is a lie, okay? It was wine. In a, one of Paul's epistles, he says being drunk is a major sin. Be not drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be instead, instead of being under the control of substances, be filled with what class? The Holy Spirit. Remember that? Um, okay, I got so many notes on this. I could be here till Tuesday. Did you bring sleeping bags? Those of you that are here. Um, okay, um, Old Testament. Let the party begin. Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast, a party of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. The Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. He'll remove his people's disgrace. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Don't read it now, but Revelation 19 is another wedding. Jesus, right now, is engaged. Oh, boy. Let's go, Harriet. He's preaching heresy. No, he's engaged, meaning he's going to be married. To who? The church. You. Me. What a bad choice in my case, but he's chosen us to be his bride. That's what it says. Cumulatively, all of us. At the marriage supper of the lamb, he'll drink wine again. Do you remember with the disciples? He takes the wine. This is my blood. Remember all that? And he says in that context, I won't drink wine again until I can drink it in other words, I can't celebrate until I die, till I rise, till I go to heaven, and until I've saved the last person I intend to save. Then I can celebrate. Till then, the earth is still a sad place with all kinds of sin. Um, okay, so John MacArthur talks about this whole wine thing. What kind of miracle is it? It's a creation miracle, right? That he created the world out of nothing. The world, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Created in Hebrew is bara. There's two words for created. One is I got some wood together and I chipped it together and I made a chair or a little dolphin or whatever. Bara is created out of nothing. Okay. He took wine and changed the molecular structure. John MacArthur in his commentary on this passage says, what do you need for wine? Grapes. Where do you get grapes? Grapevines. Where do you get grapevines? Seeds. Where do you get seeds? Other grapes. Do you see the infinite regression here? Okay, so you get some grapes, yeah, and then you have wine. No, you got to pick the grapes. Okay, now what? Now you got to crush the grapes. None of this was done, right? There's no vines there. There's no grapes. There's no crushing. There's no, we need time for it to ferment, okay? One little weird sidebar, let me throw this out there to you as well. Creation. Two schools of thought in Christianity. I don't think this is an issue we need to divide over, and that if you disagree with me, you're not a Christian, I don't think that at all. There are Christians that believe the earth is billions of years old, 
and God created the world, but it was billions of years ago. You with me? There are Christians like me that believe the earth is way younger than that, way younger. And there's a lot of scientific evidence for that. That's not why we're here. That's another talk. But if the earth is young, as I believe it is, not that old, 10, 20, 30,000 years old, instead of billion, billion years old, listen, then it was made, the earth, the galaxies, listen, with the appearance of age, even though it didn't have the age. The wine has the appearance of age. He's looking at this going, oh, 42 BC, this is a great he wouldn't know BC, right? This is vintage. This is really good stuff. And the servants go, we just poured it. What? Appearance of age. I thought I'd throw that in at no extra charge. It's a creation type miracle. When he heals people, that's different. But sometimes he restores withered hands, right? Creation miracle loaves and fish then there's miracles where he shows his dominance over nature like i said calming storms remember all that um okay god is concerned with your non-critical problems do you mean he doesn't care about the emergencies oh no he really cares about the emergencies but don't feel like god's at a big desk like the president with 46 phones and they're all ringing with prayers and he can only answer so many and please hold, you know, he's God, okay? Day or night, you don't get a recording, you get God when you pray. And he's anxious to listen to our prayers and he loves you. And every prayer, listen, gets answered. Every prayer, every prayer. Yes, no, wait. Wait is the hard one, isn't it? So this prayer gets answered. In a sense, Mary, Mary's question is a, or statement, they're out of wine, hint, hint, is a prayer you could look at it as. And Jesus could have said, you know, is, is there a leper here? Is somebody dying? Otherwise, don't bother me. Did you call 911 for the wine? Come on. But he cares because the kingdom of God is a celebration. Okay, some people think Jesus was such a serious individual and very hellfire and brimstone. And would you invite that kind of guy to your wedding with his disciples? They're just going to bring everybody down. I think Jesus loved to laugh. I think Jesus loved a good party. He loves you. And when you come to him with your prayers, he cares even about the little things because when you're a father or a mother or a grandfather or grandmother or big brother for that mother matter, and a little kid comes up to you, that's your little brother or your son or daughter and says, I got this problem. And you think, oh, what is it? And it's, you know, the eye came off her teddy bear, right? As an adult with bills to pay and a job, you're tempted to say, oh, come on. But you don't, do you? You put the eye back on. If, if we do that, what do you think God does when we come to him with our little problems? He cares. Uh, we already talked about that. He manifested his glory. Awesome. He takes something not so great and turns it into something wonderful. What you see in this miracle, listen, on a spiritual level is 
the superiority, how much better the new covenant of grace is where there's no more ceremonial washings. If you washed your hands before dinner or after dinner, it was because you wanted to. You didn't have to do it. Oh, I can't eat with unclean hands. The Jews had rules about um, an, an egg full worth of water, and it has to go roll from the wrist down to the fingers as a cleansing thing. All that's out the window in favor of the grace, the beauty of God's love for you and me. That's what you see here. He fills the water bo bottles, jars, jugs with beautiful wine. Um, the wine of joy through the working of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we already talked about that. Mm, I'm going to save that for later. And we're moving on. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Pretty good. Pretty good. Not great, but pretty good. Those of you on Zoom, wave so I know you're awake. Okay, it's pretty good. Good waves. We get exercise here as well, right? Okay, verse, uh, verse 11. He revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Wait, what about the, steward, the servants? They knew. Doesn't say they believed. Okay, listen, this is another thing. Is this a miracle? Yes. Do miracles happen every day all around us and we most of us don't even notice? Did the sun come up this morning? Do you realize what a miracle that is? You realize we're traveling at a thousand miles an hour right now, all of us, the earth's spinning one time around 25,000 miles in 24 hours. We're going about a thousand miles an hour. That's a miracle. Everybody here has no batteries unless you have a pacemaker. Okay. Your heart is going. You've been breathing this whole time. There's fresh air in this room, fairly fresh. My point is there's miracles going on. All of you right now, and those of you on Zoom, you're all digesting food. You don't even think about it. Let's go digest. There's miracles all around you. You're seeing the image you're seeing, did you know this, upside down, and your brain is flipping it so that you can see it right side up. Don't make me go into the science of that. There's miracles all around us. But if Jesus would just do a miracle for me, then I'd believe, no, you wouldn't. Todd's shaking his head, no, you're right. The servant saw it. Does it say, and the servants believe too? No. The headmaster doesn't know the master of the banquet. Mary probably knows, but she already believed. Listen, all the miracles in the world won't do it. Okay, because miracles in and of themselves create wonder. And usually, you know what people say? Do another one. Let me bring my sister. She's got to see this. Do, do another one, right? If miracles brought faith, then everybody Jesus encountered that saw miracles, they'd all believe, and they didn't, did they? Good example here. They don't believe. The bridegroom goes home and then his wedding night, he says to his bride, I, I don't know what happened, but we had some unbelievable wine, didn't we? Right? Maybe somebody told him. Verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum. That city becomes his headquarters for his ministry. With his mother and his brothers and his disciples. They stayed there for a few days. Okay. There is a teaching in Catholicism. Catholics make a much, much, much bigger deal out of Mary than is in the Bible. Most of you know this, okay? Mary in Catholicism, official Catholic, Catholic doctrine, is, listen, the queen of heaven, 
co-mediatrix with Christ. Mediator, mediatrix means mediator. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Paul writes it, right? Catholic doctrine, co-mediatrix. You can pray to Mary in Catholicism. Is that biblical? No. Are there prayers to Jesus? Yes. God? Yes. Holy Spirit? Yes. Anyone else? No. There's an admonition in Deuteronomy 13 that you're not supposed to contact the dead. What are you bringing that up for? Mary's dead. If you're talking to her, you're talking to somebody that's dead, right? Before my mother passed away, I convinced her, stop praying to Mary, mom, with scripture. Okay, Italian mother, she says to me, but who better to ask than his mother who's close to him? They brought the need for the wine to, you know, this is where they get it, okay? Um, it's an insult to God if you go to Mary. The Hail Mary prayer, how many Catholics do we have here? Anybody? Okay, just a handful. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou, among, art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. All scriptural. Second half goes south. Holy Mary, meaning sinless. They believe in the immaculate conception, listen, of Mary. Meaning what? That Mary was born of a virgin without sin. You go, wait, that's Jesus. No, it's Mary as well. They believe the Feast of the Assumption. My dad was born on the Feast of the Assumption, August 15th. What's that? You mean when Jesus was assumed into heaven? No, when Mary was assumed into heaven. Is that in the Bible? Yes, in the book of Illusions, chapter 11. It ain't in there, okay? There's no book of Illusions. You can't pray to Mary. Holy Mary, listen to this, mother of God. No, she's not mother of God. She's mother of the man, Jesus. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. You can't pray that. You pray. When the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray, does he say, write this down, hail Mary, hail. No, right? You pray to God the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Mary is highly honored and Jesus has several opportunities in his ministry, in the scriptures. If we're supposed to pray to Mary, worship Mary, honor Mary, have statues of Mary, he has several opportunities to let us know. And he always goes out of his way to show us, don't do it. At one point in Luke, Luke's gospel, a woman yells to Jesus, you're so awesome, I'm paraphrasing. Blessed is the womb that bore you, the woman that gave birth to you, and blessed are the breasts that nursed you. And Jesus says, yes, worship my mom. Wrong. He says, no, rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. Mary and his brothers come to a house where he's teaching that's so packed you can't even get in. Somebody sends word to him, you know, your mom and your brothers are outside and they want to speak to you golden opportunity. Jesus could have said, everybody make way for the queen of heaven. Here she comes. Let's hear it for, you know what he says, but who is my mother and who is my brothers and my sisters? And he gesturing to those around him who believe, he says, behold, my mother, my brother, and my sisters. Did you notice what was left out? Mother, brother, sisters, father, right? 
doesn't say, and Joe, my father back there, he says, my father's that one, right? God. Okay, enough Catholicism for one evening, don't you think? Um, chapter, see, I told you I was going to step on some toes, and I bet I'll get emails after this. Um, okay, let's move on. So there's his mother and brothers. Oh, last thing. C Catholics believe in the perpetual virginity of the Virgin Mary. What does that mean? She never had any other kids, just Jesus. Hello, brothers, sisters. He's got sisters. We know the brothers' four names are in the Gospel of um, Matthew, and I, they're in my notes. I always forget them. Um, obviously, there's Jude who wrote the book of Jude. There's James, uh, Joses, J-O-S-E-S, -S, named after his father, uh, and one other brother whose name I can't remember. But anyway, and he has sisters. We don't know how many. The Bible says G John... Joseph kept Mary as a virgin until she gave birth. Meaning what? Then they had a normal marriage. They had other kids. Fully Joseph and Mary's, whereas Jesus was the half, you know, he was Mary's child, but not Joseph's except legally. Okay, let's move on. Verse 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jewish Passover goes back to um, the Old Testament when the Jews are in Egypt and they're slaves, remember? And God says to Moses, I want you to lead my people out. And Moses says, we got a little problem. Pharaoh won't let us go. And God says, leave that to me. There are 10 plagues to show, hey, this Moses guy, his God is the real thing. Let him go. The last one is the plague where God takes the firstborn of every household. To protect the Jews, he says, so that the angel of death will pass over your house, every household sacrifice a lamb, put the blood on the doorposts, and when the angel of death comes over, he'll pass over your house and not touch anybody there, but all the other houses, he'll kill the firstborn as a sign for Egypt to say, wake up, these people are worshiping the real God, let him go. You with me? They celebrate that every year. Every, um, every Jewish family, every able-bodied male is required to go. Usually the whole family would go. Jerusalem at this time has between two and 300,000 people that live there. But it's, the population swells to over a million, sometimes as many as two million, because all these Jews from Italy, from Greece, from Africa, from wherever, Spain, travel to Jerusalem for Passover. You got the picture? Um, that's the background. So Jesus is keeping the law, so he goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Verse 14, we got a little problem. We'll just introduce it this week, and we'll discuss it next week. This is the cleansing of the temple, and there are two of those. I'll tell you about that later. Verse 14, in the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Okay, the temple, there was an outer court, okay, which was called the court of the Gentiles. A Gentile is a non-Jew, if you will, okay? That was where the non-Jews, the Gentiles, could worship. The temple was supposed to be a place of prayer, of reverence, of sacrifice, of worship for God, okay? But since people are traveling from so far away, um, Chris travels 3,000 miles to come for Passover. 
it's too hard for him to bring a lamb 3,000 miles heel, you know, the whole way. So Chris just arrives in town and goes to the temple and buys a lamb for sacrifice. But they're not supposed to sell him in the temple outer court. They're also not supposed to rip Chris off because a normal lamb would be $12. I'm making these prices up. And he says, how much for this one? And they say, I'll tell you what I'm going to do because I like you. $42.95 out the door. It's a total ripoff. He has no choice. Other people, you know, Bob and Diane come a thousand miles. They brought a lamb. And the priests who are in on the money-making greedy scheme say, oh, Bob, so sorry. That lamb, ugh, no. One of his legs, eh, you need to buy one. Of, come over, tell you what I'm going to do. And they sell him a lamb and rip him off. Every Jew also had to make a donation, a temple offering. Bob's coming with Greek money. Chris is coming with Roman money. And we only take this currency. So you'll have to go over to the table where Burton can help you. He's changing the currency and ripping you off royally. You ever go to a foreign country and you, you know it's about 20 pesos to a dollar and you give the guy a dollar and he goes, 11 pesos. And you go, what? Right? Rip off city. This is going to anger Jesus more than anything we'll see next week. Same time same channel. Anyway, let's pray and we'll pick it up there next time. But next week we're going to see, like I said, what angers Jesus the most is religious hypocrisy to pretend to be something you're not. Let's close with prayer and we'll get out of here. Last thing, those of you that are here, remember the most important thing is make sure you say hello to someone in this room you don't know because they're waiting to see if you'll say hello. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for this, the beauty of this passage. We're blown away at the titles for Jesus just in chapter one. And now he's starting to prove it, his omniscience, his ability to create wine out of water. If he cares that much, God, how big are our problems that we're so concerned about? Help us to bring them to you and trust you that you'll do what it is you want with them and answer our prayers. <clears throat> Just as you called those disciples we've seen so far, you called each one of us. Help us in turn to share the good news and tell somebody about your son, Jesus Christ, Father. Lastly, if you can take ordinary water and make wine, you can take ordinary me and make something usable for your kingdom, God. All the glory is yours. We thank you for it. And as we'll see next week, you're going to clean out the temple and the symbolism there is beautiful as well. Thank you for the unbelievable party that we're invited to, the wedding, the marriage supper, the lamb that's still future. In the meantime, use us for your glory. Thank you uh, for being with us and teaching. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Thank you on Zoom. We'll see you next Tuesday night. God bless you.